A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. This was like my open love letter to the game of basketball. When this was created, it it was just done. It was just really pure for my love of the game. And then once you see it's been received by other people and they get what you're doing, it's been a blessing. And you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. We're all getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now... Introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 21. Thanks for joining me. My website is inallairness.com. Just add a forward slash and the episode number to view show notes. I encourage you to interact with the show. Simply visit facebook.com slash inallairness. Please add your like to the page and you can suggest topics for future episodes or guests you'd like to hear conversations with. Leave voicemail comments or questions on either site. I'm thrilled to share two listener contributions in this episode. We'll hear those in just a moment. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes or you can simply add my RSS feed. Check out the right-hand sidebar of my website. You can hear the show on Stitcher, Player FM and other podcatchers. You can follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. I want to personally thank UNC Bulls 23, Willy Wonky, Steeny, Hank from the Courtside Podcast, Sizzling Hound Coaching, Luke and Tom from Believe the Hype Podcast for their written iTunes reviews. The show currently has seven five-star ratings on the Australian iTunes store, which is just fantastic. If you add a review, I'd love to mention your name in a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are the ultimate assist to me, and they help me reach a wider audience. So thanks very much. Now, some listener feedback. Thank you, John Boland, for your question, and Keith Mitchell for your great feedback. I am about to play those, and you'll hear my answer to John's question as well. Then we'll get into the description of what's coming up on this episode. Hi, Adam. This is John Bolin from Indianapolis, Indiana in the United States, home of the Indiana Pacers of the NBA. I wanted to first express how much I enjoy your podcast. I first learned about it from uh, Peter Vesey on Twitter uh, shortly after he did his interview with you, which was a fascinating listen. I was a ball boy for the Pacers in the mid-90s, as well as I did my university internship with them in 1998, which was uh, Larry Bird's first year coaching the team and the year of that great great Eastern Conference Finals between the Bulls and the Pacers. I know you're partial to the Bulls. Your favorite got the better of us on that particular series. My question for you, it just is amazing to me. I attended so many of these games, including the Game 7 of that aforementioned Eastern Conference Finals. Your memory recall and your prep 
for uh, these podcasts amaze me. You remember these games even better than me, even though I attended a lot of them in person. And you're all the way in Australia. So I want to know what all goes involved in your preparation for this podcast. How much of it is straight off your memory? How much time it takes for you to put it all together? And what all's involved in that? Keep up the good work. Uh, I look forward to your podcast every time it comes out. I check my iTunes and give it a listen every time it's available. And I look forward to the next episode. Thanks. John, first of all, thanks very much for the question. It's just great to receive some listener questions. I really do appreciate it. Now, in terms of preparation for the podcast, uh, a majority of what I contribute is from memory. But having said that, prior to each episode, I do like to swat up on my stats. Uh, I couldn't live without basketballreference.com. It's my holy grail of resources, pretty much. I also have an extensive library of MJ games on VHS and DVD, including the official NBA box sets, which I like to watch regularly as well. Professor Google is also a great resource. He's helped me unearth some excellent articles that allow me to add some more value to the conversations that I have with guests. Each episode takes probably four hours to put together. That includes editing the sound file, typing up the description and getting the finished product ready for distribution. I'm meticulous probably to a fault when it comes to preparation. My goal is for each episode to sound as professional as possible, but it is a labor of love, to be honest. So thanks for your question. Adam, this is KMitch975 letting you know that all of us NBA fans anxiously await your podcast each and every week. It's like opening up a new Christmas present. Keep up the great work. How good's that feedback? Thanks very much, Keith. Really like to hear that sort of stuff, and it just gives me the extra motivation to want to keep going and, and doing this podcast. So thank you again for sharing that. On this episode, I'm joined by Talani Goodson, the man responsible for my favorite new show, Courtside Jones. It's tailor-made for hoop heads like me. A little teaser for this episode, Talani talks about meeting Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the hours following the Bulls' 1991 NBA championship win. That's a fantastic story in itself, so stay tuned for that and plenty more great insight from Talani Goodson. Now, on to the show. My guest today is a native of New York who grew up surrounded by the game of basketball. He's now the executive producer of the TV series Courtside Jones. Guests to date have included Willis Reed, Magic Johnson, Rick Barry, Kenny Anderson and Cliff Robinson, just to name a few. I'm excited to be chatting with him today. Talani Goodson, thanks for joining me. I'm, I'm humbled. I, I appreciate it. I'm all the way over here in New York. Australia is high on my list to uh, visit one day. I'm excited. Excellent. I'm glad that you've taken the time to speak with me, and it's great to be able to chat with you. Yes. Before we talk about Courtside Jones, I'd just like to learn a little bit more about you, Talani. What are your earliest memories of watching or playing basketball? Well, growing up in New York, I, I was an athlete myself at a, at a young age, and you know, basketball coming from an inner city was very prominent. So we would go to the basketball courts and see all the older guys playing. And, but actually, my, my best sport was baseball. But at that time, you couldn't get any girls playing baseball. So I saw all, all the guys playing basketball were getting all the girls, you know, as a little kid. So that, that was like the cool thing. All the guys would come out and uh, have their radios, have their music on the side of courts, and the guys would be out there, you know, dunking and flashy. So it just naturally, uh, I gravitated towards that. But that was like my first introduction. And then here, college was real big, college basketball particularly. Mm -hmm. The Big East 
Big East basketball. And at that time, ESPN was just starting in the early 80s. So um, a lot of the college teams were just as big as a lot of the NBA teams. The duels between Georgetown, Georgetown was just as big as any NBA team. So it was probably the Lakers, the Celtics, and Georgetown was right there doing the era of Patrick Ewing. And they used to have prime time games when Patrick Ewing would play against either Ralph Sampson or Hakeem Olajuwon. Those were nationally televised games. So naturally, it just you just gravitated towards the game. But uh, my first NBA guy who I really admired and to this day was Dr. J. That, that was my guy. Num- number six out of Philadelphia. Dr. J, and then also with the New York Knicks, there were two guys. There was uh, Michael Ray Richardson before he had all his problems yeah. off the court, was phenomenal. And of course, Bernard King. Bernard King was really like my guy. Um, especially, I, I remember seeing him when he had his like uh, 50, 50 point games back to back. And, you know, it, you just, it was a magnet. The game was just a magnet. Sounds great. A great era that you grew up in for sure. And Michael Ray Richardson, he was just, I just missed his era of basketball by just a, a couple of years. So I never got to actually see him play. Obviously, there's some YouTube clips and things like that, but seeing him play would have been quite amazing prior to the, the troubles that he did have, as you said. And also Bernard King, I did see quite a few years of his career, but unfortunately, his career was shortened remarkably by uh, those those injuries that he did struggle with. But he did make it back to be that all-star in 1991, I think it was as well, which was fantastic to see him back on the court too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Bernard King, at that time, there were certain players when growing up in New York, they were New York. I mm. mean, every, every kid when you was on the basketball court – you know, they either wanted to be Dr. J, they, they wanted to be uh, Bernard, Bernard King, or there was a guy in college by the name of Pearl Washington. He went to Syracuse, who was just like an icon at that time. So it, it was a great era at that time. No doubt about that. Now, how far did your basketball career progress? What sort of level did you get to playing ball? Oh, man, I... I I peaked early uh, in elementary yeah. school. A lot of my friends still don't believe it, but I was recruited out of elementary school. I went to one of the top. Uh, my school was one of the marquee uh, schools in New York called St. Nicholas of Talentine. Uh, Malik Sealy went there. There was oh, yeah. a whole list of other guys that went there, but schooling there went all the way from kindergarten all the way up to high school. So I played all through elementary and I was on all-star teams and all that stuff, but I had a ceiling to my game, which I realized once I got to a certain point, I really wasn't that good. That That's the, the truth of it. Once I really started seeing some of these kids, the, the Rod Stricklands and the Kenny Andersons, and they took the game to a whole nother level. And I saw, you know, it was in my best interest just to become a fan of the game. I don't think my career ever even reached a peak, so at least you've had a peak. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, but you know, it's uh, it, it's uh, I really enjoyed the game, though. Yeah, that's fantastic, no doubt about that. Now, as a New Yorker, it would be unforgivable of me not to ask you about the Knicks and Bulls rivalry. In the late yeah. 1980s particularly, it began in earnest, and then it wove its way throughout most of the 1990s. How deep are your experiences or memories as a fan and even a friend of some of the former players I've since learned throughout that amazing span? Oh, I'm just a natural fan of the game. I watched 
those games were actually at many of those games personally, but I personally wasn't a fan of neither team. Uh, I wasn't a Bulls fan or a Nick team, uh, Nick fan. Like I said, going back, my guy was Dr. J. So once Dr. J retired from the 76ers, him and Charles Barkley, when they traded away Charles Barkley, that was my team growing up. But um, I watched all those Nick Bull rivalries very intensely. It was just like, I don't think you appreciated or really understood what we were seeing at that time, that era of basketball, till like now when I look back and really say, wow, you know, I got to see Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Patrick Ewing, and those teams were so physical. The Knicks teams were so physical, they just couldn't get over the hump because of a guy that wore number 23. Mm. You know, uh, Michael killed a lot of people's dreams. If, if Michael wasn't there, there's a lot of guys that would have got, would have, uh, I believe would have won rings, but Mike was just a dream killer for so many teams, not just the Knicks, but there's a long list of teams. He just kicked their, put the dagger in their back. And it's just a testament to how great Michael was. Actually, quick story on Mike. I had an opportunity at the time. I was out in L.A. and the Bulls were playing the Lakers when they won their first ring. They actually won that game out in L.A. I was with some of the guys from other teams who had already went home they didn't they didn't make the playoffs but all the guys went out to LA as fans so we decided the night that uh, the Bulls won we said let's go down to the hotel where the Bulls are staying and you know so we can go say congratulations personally you know we we were just figuring you know we'll go down there but we're not going to get in you know it's the Bulls we figured it's going to be a circus. So we get down to the hotel. They were staying down by the marina. And uh, when we get there, of course, it's a media frenzy. But we were able to get in because a couple of the guys, you know, they had NBA passes because they, they were players. Sure. Um, so we got in and we went up to, I think it was like, say, like the 10th floor because all the players were staying on the 10th floor. We uh, go to Scottie Pippen's room, congratulate him. Everybody's still in their uniform. So we're talking. Then we go to uh, Horace Grant's room. We're talking. I remember Horace Grant gave me like his jersey. And at that time, but it was sweaty. It was his actual game jersey and it was real sweaty. And I remember he he gave it to me and I gave it back. (laughs) Not knowing, out out of ignorance, not knowing, but I'm like, what am I going to do with this sweaty jersey? You know, (laughs) I I don't want this. So he, not knowing how valuable uh, all that stuff was. So, Uh um, so we asked, uh, we went back and asked Scotty, like, where's MJ at? Where's Mike at? And you got to put this in context. This is the early 90s. And he's like, oh, he's he's in a suite. So I remember I was like, wow, you know, he, he gets, when they travel on the road, MJ was getting a suite. This was before anybody was even doing this. I hadn't even heard about this. So I remember they t- told us, he told us what floor he was on. So we went up to the penthouse floor and... um I figured once again it'd be mass uh, security. However, once we got up there, there was no security, so we just boldly went and knocked on his his sweet door. <laughs> and um, his best friend at the time, he answered the door. He was like, "Who is it?" And we were like, "You know, we just mentioned who we were. Like, oh, this is Talani and whoever else I was with." Like MJ knew us. And the MJ don't know me <laughs> from a can and paint, but you know, we we just said it real boldly. So next thing you know. They opened the door and let us come in. It was like six of us. It was 
it was his best friend. It was his wife, Juanita. I think a uh, kid from Kid and Play at the time, uh, Rod Higgins. I still remember everybody that were all in the room. And I remember Mike was sitting. He still had on his uniform, and he was sitting in a chair holding the trophy. And he had a, a bottle of champagne. He took a bottle of champagne from the game with him. And he was just being reflective. He was just like on cloud nine because he just won a championship, first championship. And he was sitting there. And I remember anybody else would have been like, Mike, can I get your autograph? And would be in awe. But I remember the first thing I said to Mike was, if you don't mind, I want to hold a trophy. Because <laughs> I've always seen the trophy. And I wanted to see what this trophy was all about, you know. And I just remember being so disappointed because he was like, he said, yeah, yeah, you, you could hold it, but just for a minute. Like, he was real protective over that trophy. But he let me hold it, and I was disappointed because the trophy, they gave him a replica. It, it was like aluminum foil. It, was, it weighed about less than a pound. It was oh. just, it, it wasn't the real trophy. So for me, I was just so disappointed because I wanted to see the real trophy, but I should have known better. They wasn't going to give him the real, you know, championship trophy to take back to his hotel. You know, he was just cool as a fan, cool guy, you know, and uh, he just sat there just soaking it in, drinking his bottle of champagne. I think he probably slept in his uniform, just holding his trophy. But I always remembered that about MJ. The MJ I met was just really cool guy. Oh, that's a, an amazing story. And just I'm just sitting here with a massive smile on my face just listening to that. So, And I'm sure many other people who will hear this probably be doing something similar as well. So that must be amazingly surreal. Like It's almost 22 years ago that they won their first title uh, after that Game 5 win in LA. So just some incredible memories that nobody can ever take away from you. Yes, yes, yes. Actually, what year was that? Uh, 1991. Taking... Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, you're taking me back memory lane. Yeah. Wow, that, yes. that's a long time ago, 20, yeah, so... 21, 22 years ago. Wow. Yeah, in a couple of months' time, it'll be uh, yeah, 22 years since. So that's yeah, incredible. And, and just as, as you said about giving that jersey back to Horace Grant, uh, you, you had it for a, a few seconds there and handed it back, but still no one can take away those memories at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, I look back now and I just laugh and I have the memories. And at that point, there was one thing I, I always used to do, you know, when I was coming up, when I'd be around the guys, I, I would never ask for an autograph mm -hmm. because I always wanted to do what everybody else wasn't doing. And if everybody was going right, I wanted to go left. So I knew everybody would. The first thing all these, you know, the fans would ask for was for autographs. And I would, wouldn't do that. I would always try to speak to them on a on a normal conversation so it would be something like if i seen jordan or we were talking i wouldn't even really want to talk basketball i might ask him you know talk current events or talk politics or just ask some questions just to break the ice so you know they would be comfortable because i always wanted to get a chance to know the guys and so they allowed them to take their guard down a little bit that's a, a great point because I was going to ask you a bit later on in the talk about how you did build your relationships with some of the people that you've interviewed for the show and that answers that perfectly. You just maybe didn't do the things that they'd expect fans would do and, and ask of them each time and that did help, I guess, separate yourself from the fans as such and just develop more of a relationship oh, with them. Oh, oh, no, no. Well, that, that was for like for guys I didn't know or for just celebrities in general, whether it was from other 
fields or disciplines. But a lot of the, a lot of the guys I grew up, certain guys I grew up with, they're from my hometown. New, you know, New York has a long list of guys. And then you got to remember all these guys in the summer, everybody would play in the summer leagues mm-hmm. or, or we'd all go out playing just, you know, so they could stay in shape. So a lot of these guys I had a real personal relationship and some of the guys I would consult, you know, when I was younger, when I was in college, I came up with a kooky idea to, you know, I'm a college kid. I didn't have any money, but I knew I had a an incredible Rolodex of people I knew. So I said, you know what, me and my uh, best friend, I said, we're going to throw a party. We're going to uh, become uh, party promoters. And I came up with this whole marketing plan and we called the party the Millionaire Bachelors Party, and we invited all the Knicks, our Knicks friends, Nets friends, Giants, Jets, that's the football teams here, and, and it was a huge success. I mean, all the players came out, but we had to, the fire marshals came because so many people came, like all the women came because they just heard the slogan, Millionaire Bachelors, so they <laughs> and, so they were out in droves from all over, all over the tri-state area being uh New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and they, you know, so we had thousands of people. I was like a uh, honorary gatekeeper, so I knew a lot of the inside secrets on a lot of guys, and and we all at that time were partying together and doing all that stuff. So there was already a for certain guys there was a relationship, and there was a certain level of trust mm-hmm. that they gave me when I uh, started this venture. Oh, that's fantastic to hear, and it's some good insight there. So thanks for sharing some of that. Now, just. Before we actually talk about the show itself, once you realized that your basketball dreams on the court perhaps weren't going to become a reality, what other steps did you take along the way? You just mentioned there about doing there in college years, but after that, how did you sort of progress to the point where you then started to think about seriously coming up with that first show? Well, that was a culmination of many different things because after that, party promoter, I evolved into a concert promoter. I started doing concerts and then from there, I became a uh, manager and role manager and I was I was working in the music business so I was working with a lot of huge artists from the Thea uh, Boys to Men to the Jodeces and all this stuff at the time so as a as a young man you know you think it's great you get to travel the world and see all that so at first it, that whole experience was nice but living out of a hotel after a while it, it just became real mundane and just real empty and all that stuff. So I got out of the music business. But, you know, I'm I'm a creative person by nature. My brain was always racing with ideas. A lot of my friends are in film and in television, you know. So my whole circle is a lot of people in the arts in, in some capacity. So it was just being around all these things directly and indirectly in different ways. And that was sort of the um, genesis of the beginning for the TV series. Speaking of the TV series, for those that are yet to experience Courtside Jones, and as of the day we're recording, it's not yet available in Australia. Uh, no, how, not yet. Yeah. How would you describe the show, Talani? Uh, the show, wow. The show is my artsy interpretation of a, there's an old saying uh, that within simplicity is complexity. And I wanted to keep to create a show that was simple, but still have a little artsy. I, I didn't... Well, basically what it is, it's almost like a history lesson. It's an interview series where I have these players share intimate stories from on and off the court from their playing days. But I didn't want to create it in a generic, sterile studio setting. I take each player and we create a different backdrop. We take them 
different places. Everyone has their own independent, unique location. And, you know, it's like mini movie, mini music video. You know, that's my interpretation and allow them to share stories, not the generic stories when they go on all these other shows and talk a lot. of. I wanted it to be a little more cutting edge because I knew a lot of the inside stuff of players and players and coach feuds and player between player feuds and players who really were having financial troubles. And I just thought I wanted to get some of those real stories told, but allow them to tell it, but also at the same time inject a redeeming factor because I wanted it for upcoming players and, and other fans to see, you know, this is real life stuff like everybody else. These guys have problems um, just because they're making all this money. They suffer from the same things that we have, if if not more. And there's so much also on the court rivalries and different things. And I just wanted to allow them to uh, tell it in their own words. A great description there. And you were kind enough to give me some inside access and have a look at that first episode. And I absolutely thoroughly absorbed every second of it. It was fantastic. It was um, Rick Barry, Kenny Anderson, and Cliff Robinson were the three guests, I yeah. believe, on that first episode. And yes. Just some great stories there. And, and I was lucky enough to be able to speak with Cliff Robinson as a former guest on the show as well. And he was a great guy. So it's good to learn these things about players. You just never would actually have a chance to otherwise know. So that's what your show tends to bring out of them. Just after seeing that one episode, I'm sure that it's happened across many, many interviews that have been done since. Oh, yeah. Well, also keep in mind what people are seeing on the show that might be one story but these guys give me i have a catalog of multiple i might have five six other stories unique stories uh from the game that i haven't shared you know because just time doesn't allow allot you to tell every story that each player tells so i'll take the best or you know whichever story that might fit for that for that show and share that it's been real humbling because i've had people from all over the world who have access and seen the show, especially all over the United States where guys say they have their, their kids sit and watch the show with them because they might have heard of Rick Barry or Willis Reed and they really and just to hear these legends tell their aspect of the game, that's been real humbling experience when you start getting the feedback from all the people this was like my open love letter to the game of basketball when this was created it it was just done it was just really pure for my love of the game and then once you see it's been received by other people and they get what you're doing it's been a blessing absolutely perfect description there you can't really say much more than that Uh, how can viewers choose to access the show and, and interact online as well Solani? okay well the show Actually, it's on Fox Sports across the U.S. and, and in select markets. It's on Comcast Sports Net. So we enter into over 100 million households. Um, then abroad, internationally, so far, it's in Turkey, Israel, Middle East, all of Africa. And then later on this year, it should be expanding to the rest of the globe. But Coming up, we just did a deal. We had the whole series, entire series for all the binge watchers. They'll be able to see the whole series on Hulu and that that'll be online. So coming up uh, very shortly, you know, all the fans will be able to watch it there every episode. And um, they can follow us on Twitter at Courtside Jones or they can go to the website uh, www.courtsidejones.com.
are fantastic. And, and once that does become available to watch online, I think my wife might file a missing persons report because I'm not going to be <laughs> in the house for too long. I'm going to be just sitting at the computer watching episode after episode. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. No, I appreciate that. Now, there's no on-camera host as such for Courtside Jones. As viewers, we just hear directly from the guests and we learn about them firsthand. So personally, I think that's another way that separates your series uh, from other interview-style shows. Just to clarify, you are off-camera chatting with the guests, but can you just discuss your choice of producing episodes that way? Okay, well... For me, the whole concept behind that was I wanted to, I would like to say I had a little foresight. I wanted to eliminate any egos, Mm -hmm. uh, whether mine or anybody else. I've seen shows in the past when you have an on-camera host, and as the show grows, the host grows. And the host, I've seen uh, whole different shows hostage for money, more money, and just I just wanted to eliminate any of those possibilities and then as well as I just wanted it to be about the player. I didn't want it I didn't want any other distractions on a host or anything else. I just wanted it to all be about that player. So if I had Scotty Pippen, I just want you to focus on Scotty, hear what Scotty's saying. And those type of interviews in the past have always intrigued me. When so I'm doing the, I'm conducting the interview with the players, but you don't hear me ask the questions. It's yeah. um, and you don't see me, so you just hear the player talking. But it's done in a way where that you you know what the topic is. You you know you you get it. You'll understand the theme and the message that they're trying to convey. Yeah, I can certainly attest to that, having watched that first episode. So it comes across really well, and and you know straight away just by the way it's been put together that whatever particular topic they're talking about, you can get straight into it. So it's done really well. Um, Now, the choice of recording location is also very important for each of your featured episodes. For example, you've done interviews with Dolph Shays and Willis Reed, and they were inside a majestic theatre for Dolph Shays, and the Willis Reed one was atop a busy city building. So... You also have some select inspiring oh, music yes, yes. That, that goes well, along with each guest. Do you collaborate with the guest pre-interview? How does that all work? Well, all that is, it was the little details that were actually, for me, the biggest details. Because like I said, I, I, I didn't create the interview uh, concept. I'm just trying to put my spin on it and my little flair to it. So selecting locations for each, for the talent, is real meticulous. So I try to connect locations depending on that personality or the style of that player. Sure. So like if I had a player that was like rugged or, you know, I, I try to put him in a in a uh, location that will complement that. Like uh, when I did Dolph Shays, when people see the Dolph Shays episode, that's done in a historical, U.S. historical landmark. Uh, actually, the theater is called the a landmark theater and it goes way back to like the beginning of the century and because he's like the godfather of the nba he's probably one of him and george mikan are probably the first two nba superstars he you know he started playing in uh 1947 in the early beginnings uh when the, before the nba was even officially the nba yeah so i wanted to create a a, a location a historic landmark location to complement that uh like with willis reed he is the king of new york he's the last guy to bring a championship to the knicks Mm -hmm. and um in new york he is loved so i wanted to put him in a location that was reflective 
prime location in the middle of New York, Times Square, where you could see all that and fans can make that connection, Willis Reed. So everybody I tried to, um, whether their personality or whether it's a hobby, something that they do that you would never know that's, that's their hobby or, excuse me, different things. And I just try to compliment it and, you know, give it that little uh, eclectic feel. And you do a great job of that. Now, and a perfect example of what you bring out in your guests is that Dolph Shay's interview. I've seen a few clips of that one online. And yes. he talks about a moment where he, he broke his hand and he had to then dribble using his other hand. And then that's why he developed such great skills being able to dribble with the opposite hand. So there's just things like that that just come up in the course of your interviewing. And then he then opens up to the camera and you just learn some fascinating intricacies about these certain players that you otherwise wouldn't even know existed. Uh, I'm like a little kid when I'm with a lot of these guys because I'm learning so much. I thought I knew, but I didn't know. Like Dolph Shays, he was just like a basketball encyclopedia. Like he's part of that history behind the 24-second clock. He broke it down. His team up in Rochester, they were about, the NBA was going through, I guess this is in the 50s or the early 60s. Mm-hmm. NBA was hurting and the NBA was like on the borderline of folding. And they had to do something because games, a full four quarter game, scores were like 16 to 18, 16 mm. to 20. And that wasn't very exciting for the fans. Mm. So. Um, the way he explained it was they had to come up with a a device to speed up the game, to make the game more. Because when a team would go up back then in those days, the 50s and 60s, they would just go to the four corners. They would just stall and hold the ball when there was no. So that's no fun as a as a spectator, just watch somebody hold the ball. So they implemented the 24-second clock as a way to keep the game more entertaining to eliminate all those stall tactics and things like that. So just getting different tidbits of history and why it came to be, that was just very intriguing for me. And I get that in different forms from different players that share different things, different insights. And so I'm always like a fan as I'm, even though I'm the executive producer and creator, um, I'm more, like I said, this was my open love letter to the game. So I'm, I'm still a big kid at heart. Yeah, I love it. It's uh, absolutely fantastic. And I think that people who watch these shows are going to just realize how great a, a product it is and are going to learn so so much more about the history behind some of the players that you just never really knew much about. So it's great. Let me go back because I, I remember you asked me how much input do the players have. You know, it, it depends on the player. Like I have some players call me and they have it totally mapped out, like, they really get hands-on. Like Kenny Anderson was like, you have to f- do mine. We're going to do mine in my projects where I grew up. Like he grew up in the Notorious. They're called the Frack Projects in Queens. Mm-hmm. And um, like when we went and shot his episode, we had police security in the works. Not, not that, you know, we didn't have any problems or anything like that. But like Kenny Anderson was, for me, probably the biggest recruit ever phenomenon to ever come out of new york city and that's saying a lot because there's a lot of superstars came out of new york city but the mania behind kenny anderson when he was in high school was like no other once we went back to his old projects to film which was at his request 
you know, once the fans in his old neighborhood found out that Kenny Anderson, almost they couldn't believe it was like surreal that when they woke up, he has a court, basketball court, dedicated to him in the middle of the project. So we did it there. And once the fans, I think they had to double take like four times when they looked out and it was Kenny Anderson. And, you know, we had a camera crew filming and they just swarmed. But they came out of love. You know, they wasn't yeah. it wasn't any violence. And they just came and they were just all around. So that, those were more sort of reasons why we needed the security. So depending on the player, a lot of players really... They have a whole look, feel, how they would like to uh, film their segment. So it all depends. That Kenny Anderson interview was on that first episode I got to see, along with the Cliff Robinson one too. He's inside or sitting alongside one of his collectible cars. So that was another great oh, oh, that was, setting but too. See, those two interviews you just mentioned, what people don't see, and this is behind-the-scenes production stuff, those two interviews almost never happened because especially, Kenny and Cliff, they were like both the coldest days of the year. I mean, it was brutally freezing. It was like below zero. Kenny had flew up here from Florida, and so we didn't have a big window. And it was just, it was just like Antarctica out there. <laughs> and so we were deciding, like, are we going to do this? And Kenny was just a trooper. He was like, yeah, let, let's just do it. Let's get it over with. And same with Cliff. But those are the memories I have. When I see those episodes, I don't, the stories, you know, those aren't my memories. My memories are how cold, how freezing cold it was and how we just wanted to get, you know, our noses running everything. We just, but it was a fun time. It's a good memory. Yeah, sure, and the finished product comes through great, so <laughs> that was certainly... Well, well, that's what happens. When it's cold out there, I find it makes everybody focus more, so they get their story together, so nobody's fumbling around because everybody want to get out this cold, so everybody's hitting, telling stories, and, you know, everybody's focused, and, you know, it, it causes for a better product. That, that's, that's been my experience so, so far with, with the cold weather. So the, the weather has been an ally. Yeah, then you get the job done a bit quicker and uh, yes. more focused. Now, episode five of your show features an interview with Pearl Washington, who you've alluded to a couple of times as being one of your childhood heroes. Can yes. you just talk a little bit about his impact on you growing up? And then how did you approach actually interviewing him on your show? Oh, man, Pearl was the guy. I mean, for NBA players as well, not not just for New York, like Rod Strickland, Mark Jackson, Kenny Smith, um, Walter Bear. I mean, the, the list goes on on like you, you don't know of Pearl. He didn't have, unfortunately, his NBA career wasn't a success, you know, had had turmoil in his NBA. But his college career was like no other. He was like, for me, the first he had that flash and New York flair, like New York guards have a lot of showboat, a lot, a lot of just style, the mm. way they dribble, you know through the legs, behind the back. It was just, he just represented New York. And, you know, he was he was the first guy I'd seen with a crossover. And his crossover was incredible. Like, he'd have guys in the stands, you know, guys trying to guard him, and he'd shake them into the stands. And it was just, like, incredible. So when he was coming out of Boys and Girls High School, and uh, he was just his senior year in New York, he was an icon. So when he got to Syracuse, 
And he was doing all, he brought that New York flair to Syracuse on a national level. When he would come up to the park, he would ride up on a motorcycle. Like he'd come, he'd come to the game late, like at halftime, everybody's leaving. And they hear Pearls finally got to the game. Everybody's run back to the park. Everybody's fighting for seats just to see this guy play. And he would put on a whole big show. So he was the only guy on Saturday mornings, Syracuse University would play in Say if they were coming on at 12 noon, from 12 noon to like 2 o'clock, the whole park was empty. Everybody was gone. Everybody had to go get to a television just to see Pearl Washington play. Pearl was more personal. His interview was more personal. Actually, the first time I reached out to him, me and him, I took him to dinner to talk about the show. Because he doesn't really do any media. Yeah. You know, he's just a simple guy now. It didn't work out initially. We couldn't coordinate everything. And then I circled back and um, everything, you know, the timing, you know, all this stuff is timing. When I circled back, everything worked out and it was just, it was just, uh, you know, perfect. But if nobody else knew Pearl or cared about Pearl, I was doing Pearl anyway because he was, he was one of my personal heroes growing up. Yeah, you can just tell by the way you're talking about him how fondly that you hold him in your high regard. So yeah. that's uh, I look forward to seeing that interview at some stage when the show becomes available that, uh, here in Australia. Now, how many episodes do you have left in the current season for Courtside Jones Talani? Oh, well, that that's where we're at right now. We're up to episode eight. Episode eight just just aired, and I can I have a window, pretty much. I can probably go up to about 16 episodes another eight i'm just figuring out that that's what the production we're structuring now how many how many that we're going to do so i'm not sure yet but it's nice to have options uh you know so i I don't know if i'm going to give if i want to hold some back for season two you know hold hold some surprises because now i'm getting all not only the players but all of um the big Hollywood agencies call me every day and different things because they want to get their clients on the show and or their fans of the show. So I'm just trying to digest everything and figure out what other components I might be able to add just to maybe enhance the show and take the show to a, a whole nother level. You know, I'm always I'm a perfectionist, so I'm always looking how, you know, what I can improve and, you know, how to keep it entertaining and how to continue to tell quality stories so these young kids will appreciate it and it's easily easy for them to digest because that was another reason two reasons why I created the show two important reasons one was talking to a couple of youngsters of this generation and we were just talking basketball and of course all they talking is LeBron and Kobe so you know I throw out a couple of names of a Bernard King or do they remember, you know, certain certain players or Chris Mullen? And, and they had no idea who I was talking about. They were looking at me like I had four heads. <laughs> and um, so I thought they were goofing around. <laughs> like when I say you, you never, you know, so if they mention a guy and I say, like, if they're talking about Chris Paul or whatever, and I'm like, you know, all respect do, but do you know who Isaiah Thomas, Isaiah, you know, you couldn't, and these guys would be like, who, who's Isaiah Thomas? And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is sacrilegious. How, how don't you know who these guys are? So, so I said, you know what, let me put this together and get some of these legends and so these kids can know who they are 
And then the other reason was I didn't really start this for it to be a television series. That just just happened organically. But I, I really created the show as a web series for China. I wanted to get into China because, you know, they have over 1.45 billion people and they their number one sport in China is basketball. And they have alone probably like 500 million internet users. So I said, you know what, let me create a web series as well just for China. So, so these Chinese people and you know, I can do some business in China. One thing led to another and I was uh, approached by the executive producers of Kobe Bryant had a TV show in China called Kobe Mentu, which is like their all-time sports reality series. And they contacted me and, and they, uh, we were going to do a deal and, you know, just so many things where opportunities were coming at me fast. Really, the whole concept behind this was really, you know, to show some of these young kids who had no idea who were a lot of these legends were like, you know, they had no idea. Rick Barry averaged 35 points for one season. That That's like incredible, you know, to, to average 35 points. You know, you see Kevin Durant and he's averaging what about 28 to uh, 30. And, you know, he's a phenomenal scorer. So imagine add, adding seven more points onto that for a whole season. That's that's incredible. Definitely is, and I think it's yeah very important for people to understand the history of the game. Maybe not just the, the modern day players, which still are fantastic to watch, but to know a lot more about the history of the game behind it, it just adds to your understanding of how the game is actually played and developed over those years. So I totally agree. Yes, yes, but you know, I also the current guys. I, I bring on the current superstars and the current players on the show. We've had uh, Ron, Rajan Rondo and all those guys and a lot more surprises of the current players. But I more so talk to them about who their heroes were. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's more like a, a history test for a lot of those guys. So we, we have fun with it. And um, one, one of my trademark questions that we ask on the show, whether player, celebrity or just basketball fan, and it's opinion based question. I ask everybody, name your all time starting five, any era, you know, who your point guard to your center is. Mm-hmm. And everybody has a different team up until recently. There was only one player that made everybody's team, and of course, that was number 23. But as of recently, I've actually got like one or two people that didn't put Michael Jordan on their team. I don't know if they were doing that intentionally, but for the most part, 99% of everybody I've had on the show, MJ's been on that team. But that's always just been a fun question because it's always caused big debate, especially if a player or somebody names somebody that fans think isn't worthy, shouldn't be on it. Like when Kenny Anderson answered the question, he put Scottie Pippen at his at his three-man. And that caused a little bit of stir on Twitter, you know, with a couple of the reporters. I mean, all in fun, though. But, you know, they're yeah. like, how could you put Scottie Pippen over Larry Bird? Or, you know, they went down a list of people. And so it was all in fun. Uh, that's a great question to ask. And it certainly does give you a variety of answers across all eras as well. So... That is a, a good question. Now, are you able to lift the lid at all on any of the future guests that you may have on the episodes of the show, or, or you prefer to keep that close to your chest for the oh, time yeah, being? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I keep that. that <laughs> that's like top secret. So I, I, it's, it's a surprise. You know, every episode, I, I want people to anticipate who's coming and, you know, who's going to be. Because actually, the show just doesn't focus on superstars. A lot of times, some of my best stories are guys who were like 12 men or guys who sat on the bench. Some of those guys, because they were watching, 
and they were, you know, since they weren't playing, they they have so many great stories from watching the game and sitting over there on the bench. And some of those guys are phenomenal storytellers. The truth of the matter is, maybe I shouldn't say this, but some of your superstars or some of your big names, some of those guys, not 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 a lot, but some of them are terrible interviews. You know, there's a select few, and it's just their personality, whether they're really quiet or really shy or something like that. And I guess sometimes they're thrown into the media spotlight based on how good their game is. So it yes. doesn't always translate into an interview style or just being on camera in general. So I understand where you're coming from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they might have the big household name. They could care less about the fame. They love the game. So they, they didn't really care about all the other stuff. And that's not their personality. Some of that stuff you don't learn till actually firsthand till you. It's too late. You're in the middle of the interview and you've figure out, oh, that this guy really, you know, is not comfortable or this isn't his strong suit. Yeah, I understand, I understand. Now, is there a most surprising thing that you've learnt since creating the series? Is that possible to come up with one thing that might uh, be the most surprising? Oh, man. One of the main things has been just the, the support, the teamwork that people, you know, when I started this, I was just a little engine that could. I didn't have a big name at all. You know, this wasn't really my specialty, my background or anything like this. But as you do good work, other opportunities and people came on to lend their support. Mm -hmm. And that was just just the humanity with people um, and how they just came in and uh, offered their resources and things of that nature and how it just really once you get on the road to doing something positive and really doing it sincerely, trying to also help and teach so many other doors open up. And then the other thing was the players. Wow. I mean, there's been some superstar players that if I hadn't done this, I would never think I would have had an opportunity or that they would, they would have been above doing something like this at that time. And so many guys, I get calls now from all type guys, you know, superstars to look, and they're like, I want to do your show. I want to be on your show. I love your show. And, you know, so just the support and thought uh, you would think when you hear all the stories that people wouldn't have just opened up their services like they did or have. Oh, that's fantastic that they that they have, and I'm sure you're quite humbled by it, as you sound like you are. So, uh, yes. some incredible opportunities. So, congratulations on that as well. Just a couple more quick questions before we wrap things up. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Now, yes, you were a recent guest on the Bottom Line Sports Radio Show, which was hosted yes. by none other than Charles Oakley and Penny Hardaway. I haven't had a yes. chance at this stage to hear. The interview, I've been trying to track it down online, but how was that experience being a guest on a show rather than actually being in the role of interviewer? Wow, that's that's a little awkward. Even like now, you know, uh, when I get calls from media and they want to do interviews or they want me to, it's been awkward because I'm so used to being behind the camera and conducting the interview. Like I, ESPN called me and then I have a lot of the NBA teams contact me, their radio networks. Sure. And they want me on as a guest and different and all different outlets from all over the world. I mean, I'm humbled by it, but it's just been awkward. But being on there with uh, the bottom line with Penny Hardaway and Charles Oakley, um, it was it was a great experience. And um, I just chalk it up to, I guess, people want to hear what you have to say. And I just use it as a learning tool to hopefully 
inspire, motivate some people uh, or young kids who are either trying to get be entrepreneurs or learn more about the game or different whatever that individual can get out of it maybe i might be able to say something to spark them or to motivate them or inspire them to do something so i'm getting more open to doing more media and different things um because I, I get a lot of organizations that want me to come speak to the youth sure. uh to a lot of kids and different things like that so if it's for good and stuff like that uh i, I enjoy it very good now, just one more quick question for you. The 2013 NBA playoffs are now yes. in full swing. So as we record this, some of the first-round series are coming to a, a close. Given yes. your strong love for the era of hoops past, how do you compare today's NBA with, with yesteryear? And then the second part is, who do you actually think will progress right through to the NBA finals of this season? Well, the comparison of errors, I think these kids... This generation, physical gifts are off the charts. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think what you're seeing with LeBron and just physically, the, these kids, um, their talents, athletic ability and stuff like that. But I think, this is just my opinion, mm -hmm. I think fundamentally this era is lacking. I, I don't think they could compete against. For example, I can't tell you, I think once Tim Duncan retires, I think a low post big man with low post moves and moves back to the basket will be extinct. I don't see anybody mm -hmm. with low post moves or a signature move. It just baffles me. Two things baffle me on that. The all-time leading scorer in NBA history is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I don't understand why no big man has contracted this man to teach them the skyhook that's like the, probably the greatest signature move ever in the history of basketball yeah. is that skyhook and he threw it with the left hand or the right hand and it what it did for his career because it's just an angles it doesn't put all that wear and tear you know on your legs but also i understand that's not sexy it's not a sexy move but that alone is like the greatest single signature shot in the history of basketball in you know, 44,000 points attest to that the other move is and he speaks about it Rick Barry when he retired he was the all-time leading leader in NBA history free throw leader free throws percentage in NBA history mm -hmm. but he shot it underhand why and there's a lot of people out there that need help and they need to experiment with something different because they're not going to get any better. And why no one else has ever adapted that move. So those two are probably your one and two greatest signature moves in the NBA history. You know, his underhanded free throw and the sky hook, mm -hmm. but nobody touches it. But actually, when I really want to see fundamentals, like old school fundamentals, I look at females the, the women's game because a lot of those women because they don't have the athletic ability so they have to maintain the fundamentals and do everything that way but you know I, there's no knock on today's game but i just i think the first player of this new era who develops some of those basic fundamentals self for example you look at stefan curry those players they're the elite right now but Especially in the big man, you know, your centers. I, I just don't see any centers coming out. I remember, you know, my era growing up, you had Patrick Ewing, Elijah Wine. I mean, there was center after center and everybody yeah. had footwork in the paint, but you just don't see that anymore. 
exactly right. And um, just in relation to that Rick Barry that you mentioned with his free throws, in that first episode that I was fortunate enough to see, he talked briefly about how he had discussions with Del Harris at one stage when he was Lakers coach about working with Shaquille O'Neal to help him to, to consider yes. changing his whole free-throw shooting routine, but Shaq didn't want to go for that sort of style because it would have maybe affected his reputation. Exactly. Rick was saying Shaq was probably the closest player he got to adapting shooting underhand, but at the last minute, Shaq chose not to just because, you know, his image, his, his off-the-court image, according to Rick, that, you know, would have affected that. But, you know, if, if it's going to enhance your game, I don't think there's anything off off limits if it's going to make your game better. Yeah, very you true. Know. Just one last thing. Who do you think will win the NBA Finals this year? Uh, well, I, I always preface it barring injury. Because yeah. like you just seen what happened in OKC, that, that just changes the dynamics immediately. So barring injury, I think it, the trophy goes back to Miami a second time. Fair call. It's pretty hard to see them, injury aside, it's very hard to see them not getting through to the finals and, and particularly with Russell Westbrook now uh, having surgery or coming up to have surgery, it's going to make things that more difficult for OKC to, to get through. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, even if OKC was, even if Westbrook was healthy, I mean, it would have made it more of a, a challenge. I just don't think uh, Miami, once they're rolling right now, it's just hard to touch. Yep, definitely. Now, Talani, it's been a real treat speaking with you today. Thanks so much for giving up your time, and I, I hope that Courtside Jones continues to build its reach worldwide, and I'm sure that most people listening to this show are already students of the game across many eras, and, and your show is just going to help develop that even further. So thanks again. Uh, thank you, and if fans that watch your show, if they can go follow us on Twitter at Courtside Jones or Come visit us at our website at www.courtsidejones.com. We'd appreciate it. And uh, I'm just very humble and thankful that you had uh, had me on and appreciate all the support. Not a problem at all. I, I'm happy to do it. And, uh, yeah, it's just been great being able to chat with you today. And, yeah, your Twitter account's definitely a must-follow as well so people can stay in touch and see what you're up to. And you've also got a Facebook page too. Yes, yes, yes. Same thing, the Courtside Jones uh, fan page, uh, TV show fan page. So I want everybody, you know, come and share their thoughts. And if anybody has any ideas or recommendations of any players that they'd like to see on the show, please uh, send them our way. Definitely will. All right, so thanks again, Salani. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. Please visit the show's social hub, facebook.com slash InAllAirness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.